and we will be reading John 12, 20 through 36. Now among those who went up <clears throat> to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So there came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to you, I, before this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come from I. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. This is God's word. Um, for any of you who might not have been here when I introduced myself earlier, just again, I'm Mark, the uh, pastoral intern here at Grace Valley, and I'm preaching this morning because Paul, our uh, lead pastor, is away. Um, and just, I forgot to mention earlier, but usually we practice communion every week, but we won't be able to do that this week uh, because I'm not ordained and can't do that. So there should be plenty of time for a Q&A after. Um, but yeah, before we jump into our text uh, from this morning, a little bit of background um, is necessary. Um, for those of you who have been um, following along with the sermon series in the Gospel of John, um, you may notice that we skipped over a pretty significant story here. Um, and that is because um, G uh, Paul is going to preach uh, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, which is next week which is the day of the church calendar when we normally commemorate that event. Um, and contextually, that's important because obviously that's a major event in Jesus' life and ministry. Um, it started the clock ticking on the last week of his life of never be leaving again alive. Um, so it, it, it started a shift in his ministry focus. Um, and so our passage begins with Jesus already 
in Jerusalem, surrounded by a crowd of people who have been uh, mostly Jewish followers, who have been, who've been following him around uh, since he raised Lazarus from the dead and drawing lots of attention. So, um, have you ever been in a situation where you've gotten more than you bargained for? Have you ever asked for something specific only to receive something that seemed totally unrelated? Um, Our passage today opens uh, with a group of people making a seemingly straightforward request. They say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Um, They wish to meet him. They wish to speak with him. They wish to find out who this man is. Right? But you don't have to be paying very close attention to realize that the answer that Jesus gives to this very straightforward request is anything but straightforward. These people had come apparently hoping to request a meet and greet with a man at the center of all the excitement and controversy in the city at that time. But Jesus had something very different in mind. As we've been seeing throughout our series in John's Gospel, time and time again Jesus has said, Uh, My hour has not yet come, or my time has not yet fully come, or some iteration of that that sentiment. And so it's incredibly significant then to note that here in our text this morning, in response to the request to see him, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And now what I want us to see this morning is that this is an invitation. It's a somewhat cryptic invitation, but it's an invitation nonetheless. Jesus invites his hearers to come and to know the true Jesus and what he has actually come to accomplish and how. He invites them to the big reveal of this divine rescue mission that spans the entire arc of history since its very inception. He invites us to watch him die. See, the Gospel of John can roughly be divided into two halves, um, sometimes called the book of signs, and the book of sayings. Um, And we've spent the entire sermon series so far in the book of signs, in which John is chronicling uh, the miracles and and wonders that Jesus has been working in an attempt to illustrate what he entered into human experience to accomplish. And we've seen time and again that Jesus' concern is that his followers are not fully understanding who he is. And our passage today serves as a transition point between these two books. And here, this is where John presents this shift in Jesus' ministry focus from demonstrating what he came to accomplish to explaining how he was going to accomplish it. Here, Jesus explicitly links his glorification with his death and his heavenly exaltation with his earthly humiliation. It's no accident that the most iconic symbol associated with the Christian faith is the cross. And it's no surprise that when Paul begins his letter to the Corinthian church, the first letter, um, he says that he decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so I invite you all to join me this morning in considering this unexpected invitation of Jesus and weighing each of us for him or herself whether we are delighted by it or discouraged and disappointed by it. If you remember a couple weeks ago, uh, Paul told us that if we honestly examined the, the content of Jesus' life and ministry, there are really only two logically consistent conclusions that we can arrive at. 
either he is who he says he was, and he's the king of the universe, or he's a crazy person. And because Jesus' invitation in these next five verses, the five verses from 23 to 26, is so loaded, uh, we will be zoomed in there for most of the sermon, and so I apologize in advance for my lack of attention and comment to a lot of other very interesting things that are in this passage. Um, but we will, which I realized are not on the bulletin, and so I'll give them to you now if you want to follow along. So the first one is, who is the invitation for? The second is, why do we need this invitation? And the third is, what does it look like to accept this invitation? Um, and so we begin with the first question. Who is this invitation for? Up until now, uh, Jesus, who was a Jew himself, had been ministering almost exclusively to the Jews, um, with a few notable exceptions, like the Samaritan woman at the well. And so it's of great significance, then, that John identifies the group seeking Jesus here this morning, in verse 20, as some Greeks. Even though Greek was the universal language of much of the Roman Empire at that time, the specific terms used to refer to uh, ethnic Greeks or Gentile Greeks, not Greek-speaking Jews. And the text says that they were among those who went up to worship at the feast. These Gentile Greeks were in Jerusalem to take part in the Passover festivities. But it's important for us to realize that they, they would have done so in much the same way that, um, that a North American tourist might go to Munich during Oktoberfest. Right? You can drink the beer and eat sausages and you can even wear a funny little alpine hat with a feather in it. But that doesn't make you German. Right? And so these Greeks would have been partaking in the festival as outsiders. And so these Greeks had a problem. John presents them as worshipers, there to worship the one true God. And they need a way to be made right with him. Because the exclusivity of the Judaism of the time kept them from worshiping God in the ways that he had prescribed for his people. There were actual physical boundaries around the Jewish sanctuary that the ritually unclean, whether Jew or non-Jew, uh, were not permitted to cross. And if they did, they could be killed. And the reason that everyone is piling into Jerusalem a week before Passover is because they needed that time to perform the annual purification rites necessary to be declared clean, these Gentiles to be made clean. According to Jewish tradition, the Gentiles hadn't merely been contaminated by coming into contact with some external source of uncleanness, but they were actually themselves a source of uncleanness. Right? This was a problem without a solution. And so being in the city at that time then, they had likely witnessed or at least heard um, of all the commotion surrounding Jesus' entrance into the city and certainly the reaction that it was gaining. Um, and the crowd that had been there when he raised Lazarus was, it's noted earlier, that they had been going around the city um, spreading this news and causing quite a buzz. And so it seems perfectly logical then that these Gentiles would go to investigate who this man was who was at the center of all, all the hubbub. Um, but what is so, what is it about these Gentile Greeks coming to Jesus that is so significant to him? 
Why does this trigger his announcement that the hour has finally come? It is because we've, as we've witnessed through the entire first half of John's gospel, Jesus has made it known that he has a penchant for solving people's unsolvable problems. Right? He makes lame men walk. He gives sight to the blind. He even brought a three-day-old dead guy back to life. Bless you. Do you get the sense that something amazing might be about to happen? Um, all throughout his ministry, Jesus has been trying to explain that he's going to accomplish the glorification of his father through his death by securing his people from all ethnic backgrounds, not just the Jews. Uh, back in chapter 3, he has a late night. And this, of course, is followed by one of the most famous verses in the whole Bible, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But Jesus' Jesus's Jewish followers, even though they were beginning to recognize him as the fulfillment of the messianic promises, were still only thinking of him in reference to their narrow view and the exclusivity of the promises to the Israelite people. The passage immediately before ours closes in verse 19 with the Pharisees lamenting, uh, look, the world has gone after him. Jesus was now beginning to draw people of all different kinds to himself. And as he explains to the crowd wishing to see him how he was going to be glorified, he confirms the inclusivity of the invitation he is offering, saying, and this is verse 32, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So Jesus here is making explicit the fact that his glorification is going to be accomplished by throwing wide the gates of heaven and extending the offer of salvation to people of all kinds. Through Jesus, these Gentile worshipers could be made clean. They could receive full status as people belonging to the one true God in him. Now many people think that Christianity is exclusive or discriminatory or bigoted. But if we read this, we have to know that there's nothing could be farther from the truth. Right? Jesus invites all people to receive full status before God in him. It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from or what you've done, what color your skin is or what language you speak or what tax bracket you're in. Jesus' invitation is for you. And Jesus' invitation to be glorified in the text isn't exclusively addressed to the Greeks either. It's important to see that there are references in 29 and 34 to the crowd, and this is the crowd that was already following Jesus, uh, consisting mostly of Jewish followers. Um, and so his invitation is to the Greeks, to these Jewish followers, and even to his own inner circle, to the disciples. Jesus' invitation is to outsiders and insiders alike. He recognized that the Gentiles weren't the only ones with a solutionless problem. He says, you all need me to do this for you. And so who is the invitation for? This invitation is for everyone and for always. And of course, this naturally begs the question, why? 
And that's our second point. We're going to ask the question, why do we need this invitation? Why do we need Jesus to die on the cross for us? The short answer is this. Jesus knows that our state is so dire that nothing short of his atoning death on the cross could ever be enough to accomplish all that we need accomplished on our behalf. You see, Jesus knows us. And he describes our precarious natural state in two ways in the text today. He says that apart from him, we are dead and we are hopelessly lost. Because the cross and its brutality don't make any sense until we understand that our rebellion against God has earned every single one of us, whether we acknowledge it or not, the sentence of death. And we are on borrowed time. So look at verse 25. Whoever loves his life on the surface, that seems like, a, like an odd thing to say. Right? But Jesus isn't vilifying the enjoyment of good things. Um, in fact, uh, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father, right? That's James 1.17. But neither is he promoting self-loathing or asceticism. Rather, Jesus lays the choice before each of us. Essentially, he's saying something like this. If you want to live your best life now, you can have it. But just know this. You're forfeiting eternity in heaven with me. The Apostle Paul reminds us that the things that we believe will bring us joy in this life ultimately pale in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. That's Philippians 3. Jesus is saying that our natural human bent is to live for ourselves and our own little kingdoms. We concern ourselves primarily with our own comfort and security and believe that self-denial is a dirty word. This is why advertising is so effective on us, right? We don't need much convincing that we deserve nice things. We, we even start to believe that we need them, right? And we also don't think we should have to wait for them, which is why, you know, Visa this year has uh, 323 million cardholders, and MasterCard is lagging way behind with a mere 200 million. Um, we live in a culture that has bought this hook, line, and sinker. But Jesus warns us that the treasures and pleasures of this world are temporary and fade away fast. Everything in this world will eventually turn to dust and slip through your fingers. But throughout the entire Gospel of John, Jesus has been pointing to an infinitely better option in himself. He says he came to offer water that will quench our thirst forever. Bread that will never leave us hungry again. And life that will never see death or decay. He offers us eternity with himself. Why would we settle for anything less? C.S. Lewis puts it this way, and it's on the front of your bulletin. A quote there, if you want to follow along. It's from the weight of glory. He says this. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making me too easily pleased. Lewis is saying that all the things that we think will bring us joy and fulfillment cannot actually satisfy us. 
They will never be enough. I'm sure you've all heard that infamous quote from uh, John D. Rockefeller when a reporter supposedly asked him how much money is enough, and he allegedly replied with just a little bit more. The things of this world will never be enough, but we settle for them over the ultimate joy and fulfillment being offered by Jesus because we have too small a vision of glory. What desires and earthly pleasures threaten to keep you from fully giving yourself to Jesus? He's inviting you to taste and see true joy and true fulfillment in him. He doesn't want us to go on being ignorant of what's being offered. Don't settle for loving this life. Don't be too easily pleased. Jesus offers dead people true life. All right, so Jesus says that apart from him we are dead, but he also describes us as hopelessly lost. So let's look at verse 35. The second half here, he says, Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. Jesus is pointing out that unless we put our trust in him and look to him as our savior and our king, we are actually walking around in the dark. It's impossible to have a right sense of direction or heading in the dark, right? We may think we're going in the right direction, but we have no way of, and this is how this, this works itself out in our lives, right? To see Jesus on the cross rightly is to know that our sin, that it is our sin rather, that made his death necessary. Our problem is we don't realize how big of an issue our sin actually is. But that's the truth about us. And if we deny this basic truth and exchange it for the lie that good comes from within us, as our secular culture has, then we're doomed to always be tackling the symptom instead of the source when it comes to trying to fix the problems of evilness and brokenness in the world, right? And this is why as, as health and wealth and security are statistically on the rise in Western civilization, incidents of of mental illness, addiction, suicide, and corruption are all rising with them. We need the light of Jesus to rightly see ourselves and safely navigate the world around us. Let me attempt to illustrate this for you. I had a lot of fun researching this one. Um, have you ever seen a time-lapse video of a sunflower tracking the sun? Yeah, anyone? <laughs> Maybe I'm the only person who goes looking for that stuff. Um, <laughs> according to Google, um, we don't actually know for certain why they do this, but the best theory is that um, they're trying to heat their blooms in an attempt to be more hospitable to pollinating insects uh, for more hours of the day. Sounds, sounds good to me. But, um, so that if that's true, <laughs> then they maximize their exposure to the sun as a basic survival and propagation instinct. So in order for them to fulfill the purpose of their own existence, they must orient themselves to the sun. Likewise, to be fully human is to orient yourself to the God you were created to serve. He is the standard of reality to which our lives must conform. It is only by understanding what Jesus accomplished on the cross and responding to it that we will ever truly realize the purpose of our own existence. So what does this practically mean for us? I'm going to explore what it actually looks like to accept death 
Um, and this is in verse 26, no, sorry, in 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Right? Jesus uses this image that would have been very familiar to his audience to unpack an incredible amount of information. And he's essentially pointing out that just as a grain of wheat must die or be planted in the ground, right? In order to provide life for many grains of wheat, so he must die in order to secure eternal life for all who would believe in him. And it is through the salvation of sinners that God is glorified. And as more and more followers of Jesus are are born again to this new life, they bring exponentially more praise and honor and glory to the Father. But according to Jesus' metaphor then, if we are in him, then we too become grains of wheat. We too must die and bear much fruit. Jesus explains what this entails in verse 26. Verse 26 says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. So Jesus wraps this concept up in in two words. He says, serve and follow. Jesus calls those who would be his disciples to follow him wherever he leads. And in this case, he leads us to the cross. And to the ultimate act of self-sacrifice. Giving his own life up for unworthy sinners. And so we follow Jesus' lead by dying to ourselves and to our own interests and serving him and others with our lives. Disciples of Jesus ought to be recognizable, described last week, and honestly, at this point, you could kind of just take his sermon and plug it in because um, he spoke about when Mary was anointing Jesus' feet, right? And he's talking about when you truly come to recognize who Jesus is and what he's done on your behalf, you're transformed into this kind of person. And Jesus said, Uh, or, sorry, Paul said (laughs) uh, that people who truly see Jesus, they become humble, right, in the sense that they forget about themselves and their reputation and their adoration of Jesus. They become so passionate for Jesus' glory that the opinions of others become powerless to affect them, right? This also makes them more vulnerable, less self-protective. They aren't afraid to be truly known by others, And they also don't hold anything back in their service. As Paul put it last week, nothing you give up for Jesus can possibly compare to the love you get from him. Right? But our culture teaches us to value resilience, independence, and self-sufficiency above most other things. But that's not the way of people who have actually seen Jesus, right? People who know they've been redeemed are free from slavery to these things. We are free to share our doubts, our fears, our questions, and our weaknesses with one another. We no longer have to exhaust ourselves trying to keep up a facade. We can deal graciously with one another because we understand that we all need Jesus in exactly the same way. This should be radically transforming for our engage groups, for one. Right? But living this way is hard because we are forgetful and we are weak-willed and the siren songs of this world tug and pull at our desires and affections every day. And so this requires a fundamental shift in our perspective. 
If we are ever going to have a hope of fulfilling the command to love our neighbor, or harder still, to love our enemies, we have to gain an eternal perspective. And this is part of what Jesus means in verse 25 when he talks about hating this life, right? He doesn't mean that we literally hate our lives, but rather that, it's that, we, that we work hard to cultivate such a vivid image of being with Christ in glory that our love and longing for it make our love for earthly things look cold and lifeless by comparison. That's part of verse 26. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Scripture never makes a demand on us that isn't couched in the promise that everything we need to obey that command will be provided for us. The joy of the reward that is promised for fulfilling our true purpose, being honored by the Father, or as verse 36 says, becoming sons of light, far outweighs the temporal shame and, or pain of rejection or self-denial in this life, or even death, if we are called to that. The Apostle Paul says that everything we suffer in this life is, is as a light momentary affliction in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that is being prepared for us. 2 Corinthians 4. And so Jesus invites each of us to pick up our personal cross and follow his lead. At the beginning of the sermon, I, I said that we are going to investigate Jesus' invitation and weigh out uh, whether we are delighted by it or discouraged by it. And I want to conclude by returning to that. Are you feeling discouraged by what you've heard this morning? Does it seem like Jesus is asking too much of you? Does it seem too all or nothing? Trust me, I get it. Um, I spent years of my life wrestling with this. I hated that it felt as though God had given me free will only to ask me to give it back for me to get by on. They weren't perfect, but at least they were familiar. But as I was confronted more and more with the idea that Jesus had died for me, I began to feel this and to see more acutely how powerless I was to change myself. And I couldn't even think about questions of purpose or the meaning of life without falling into deep despair. I began to see that I was running from my doubts, fears, and questions, or trying to explain them away, not that I didn't have any. So Jesus invites us to know a peace and love that will never fail us. We put our trust and hope in the one who loved us enough to go to the cross for us when there was no other way. No human accolade, no affirmation, no accomplishment could ever come close to providing you with the sense of wholeness and worth that comes from knowing the affection and delight of your creator. He is the lover of your soul. Respond to this more fully. Are you ready to take your walls down, to stop protecting yourself? Are you ready to loosen your grip on the pleasures and treasures that you've been storing up? Are you ready to discard it all for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus as your Savior and King? As we fix our eyes on Christ and come to know him in deeper ways by the work of his Spirit in our hearts, to understand more and more what he accomplished on the cross on our behalf, we cannot help but to follow him 
to serve him, to grow more and more in his likeness. How could we ever look on such love and be unchanged by it? Ed Walsh said something like this in a lecture once. He said, as we learn to look more and more to Jesus, we will begin to look more and more like him. Do you wish to see Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have loved us so deeply that when our situation was utterly hopeless, Jesus willingly laid his life down for us. Lord, teach us to find our identity in this and nothing else. Let our thankfulness for this amazing gift of grace be the only motivation of our hearts. And may our entire lives bring you glory. Amen.